Welcome to The Healthy Beast. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Steve Alder. He's a consultant neurologist who works for a Harley Street company called Recognition Health, recognitionhealth.com. He specializes in treating patients who have suffered traumatic brain injury and also what they call medically unexplained neurological symptoms, so pain when they don't know the cause. I learned some really interesting stuff from him. There is one slightly gory bit towards the end, but he's a doctor and you know what they're like. Dr. Steve Alder. Dr. Steve Alder, welcome. So you are a consultant neurologist at Recognition Health. I specialize in brains and nerves, and um, in terms of pain, then a lot of the worst types of pain become, come from neurological injury. So I've got an interest in neurological pain. I'd like to look at things from a really basic point of view to start with, because the more I've talked to people, about pain, it seems to me that pretty much everyone, and we're not talking about like kids hurting themselves and it going away, I'm talking about grown-ups who've got ongoing pain issues. And it just seems to be this far more than I'd ever expected. And I guess I want to know really the, the main ways people may be misunderstanding what's happening in their body and the way they may be misunderstanding what to do about it. Yeah, no, pain is interesting. So I had, I started to develop an interesting pain and interest in pain through two separate experiences that happened quite close together. So I did a fellowship in Australia and in the fellowship in Australia there was, a, there was much more interest in acute aggressive rehabilitation and where I was working was a, a big trauma centre so all of the um, major trauma in Sydney went to one of two hospitals and I was in one of them and I was attached to that trauma team. And one of the many things that I saw were people with phantom limb pain. So people had an amputation and then they had um, residual pain. And supposedly as a neurologist, at the time I had no explanation for that. But strangely, I'd seen a journal article where people had been using mirror therapy to help people overcome um, phantom pain. And where I was, they were starting to use mirror therapy to help people um, get rid of pain phantom limb and I was amazed at how much we knew about how people even thought to do that so that started me off with you know, understanding pain in a more complicated way and then as happens to most of us I got pain so I got back pain and it was um, about 18 months later and I was running and suddenly I just felt like someone had shot me in the back and I had and it was like wow what happened and then I got home and by that evening I just couldn't stand up I could hardly get up the stairs um, and it was extraordinary it was so painful um, but it went in a, within seven days and then about four months later it came back and uh, then I got pain all the time and I tried to exercise every day I'd exercised every day since I was 18 and now I couldn't do this and I was at the time doing a pain module as part of um, finishing my training. So I would sit with a pain medicine person um, sitting in the clinics. And so I, say, I said to him, well, you know, this pain is terrible. What's causing this pain? Um, and then he then said, well, you need to go and read some work by a guy called Nikolai Bogduk, who was a chap in Australia. And he had done lots of work on the what, what causes back pain. Now, um, luckily, looking back, 
after about three or four months that back pain settled but what I noticed in that three or four months was um, a how everybody gets bored of you so people are sympathetic but when it starts to affect you know my ability to kind of look after the kids my ability to kind of work properly people are sympathetic but it starts to have a significant um, impact and then I was noticed how down I was getting as a consequence of it and then I just couldn't get access to kind of the testing that I thought would help me understand where the um, pain might be coming from but anyway it settled but but, but those two experiences um, gave me um, started to give me a real sort of interest in pain um, and particularly chronic pain and particularly um, the buzzword that people use about pain is biopsychosocial model um, and I was very interested in what that really meant in the, in the pain clinic it seemed that the pain um, doctors who were largely anaesthetists in that clinic anyway were very focused on biological pain so just to repeat those so you've got bio biological yeah. Psycho, psychological, social, the social okay. um, context in which you find yourself. Okay, so we'll get get on to that. So you yeah. say, so biological. You're yeah, saying. so so um, I I really enjoyed the time, but I didn't see much psycho or social input. It was more mm. people come in trying to find people with discrete pain that you can either inject or you can give a specific tablet for, and any of the psychosocial elements. You know that wasn't for this particular clinic so that's so that's basically the pain relief that most people know about you, you know you take an aspirin you take a whatever it is paracetamol or well, so, so, so the, the, yeah absolutely so they, they, they were keen to try and get you you know on the right tablets for the right pain but they were particularly interested in sort of doing injections of facet joints in the back doing nerve root blocks um, well, and it was really interesting to see that, but it, I, what I took away from it, it was very biological. Mm. Now, I, I had had some experience of um, pain services where they had more psychological, social um, focuses, but this was back in 2003, and we're now in 2019, so 16 years on, and really, as I've kind of um, carried on my sort of clinical career, it's felt as though um, the biopsychosocial elements um, haven't been integrated in a way that maximally helps patients at the moment. So in basic terms, too many people are too focused on the biological solution? Well, I think you, some people are very focused on the biological <laughs> Yeah. Um, some people are very focused on the psychological and some people are very so focused on the social. So depending on who you meet as an individual patient, you can end up being you know, sold one, one third. Mm -hmm. and, and, and sort of my clinical experience is, um, particularly with the more complicated patients, is that it's inevitably, there's a combination of yeah. all three and to maximize your outcome you you really need the right input from all three but that's very difficult to get mm -hmm. 
Okay. So what did, what did this lead you to to discover? I mean, perhaps I should um, to look at it another way. Look at what have you learned that we've been doing wrong? Let's put it in the simple terms. Well, as, I, as, in, as individuals. Yes, I think in in terms of it, it's, it's what you see. So um, so at the moment, it, depending on exactly sort of which role you have, you see pain in different. Um, in different conditions. So when you're doing sort of general neurology, the commonest thing you would see is headache. And, um, and then when you start seeing a lot of headache, it's very interesting because um, to begin with, patients who have new headache, what they're really worried about is, is this significant? Is this, have I got a brain tumour? Is there something wrong with my brain? And what they, what they want from you is a scan to say no. But once you've done the scan, you've reassured them that it's there's nothing going on. They then start to focus on the fact that the pain keeps coming back and the pain is intrusive. And so then they want an explanation for the pain, so which is inevitably some form of migraine. Whenever well, as in they say it, they say it is because that means bad headache to them. Is that well, no, no, that's it. That, when you when you get into the character of the headache, it's yes. typically most headaches are some form of migraine. Um, now before. If you'd have said to them, I think your headache's migraine, they're not really listening to you. They're like, I want you to tell me my brain's okay and I want to scan, thanks. And so you do the scan. But once they're reassured about that, they then start focusing on the fact this headache keeps coming back and it's really a pain. I really want to know what it is. So then they're willing to kind of listen to you sort of say, well, I think this is a form of migraine. And then they get very interested in, okay, so what can you do with for me? What treatments have you got? And then you get into um, what treatments are available. Do you want to try them? And inevitably people sort of say, yes, I do. But then for quite a lot of people, trying to find the right tablet at the right dose is quite a tricky exercise. And you have to see the person a lot. You have to sort of titrate the doses. And what I found is that the NHS particularly is not well suited to that type of individual titration experimenting to get the right dose for the right person over what could easily be like 12 months. Yeah, well, could you just get, if it's pain relief, you get a standard dose, don't you? Well, this is what happens is you, it, it, when you kind of get into pain that, so, so if we have acute pain, so toothache or a one-off headache, then it's easy. You, 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 it's going to be a one-off. You might take some painkillers for that period of time. But when people start to get ongoing pain, the whole situation suddenly gets so much more complicated because suddenly you're thinking about taking tablets much more frequently. And if you're taking tablets much more frequently, you start to become much more worried about the side effects. And if you're taking them more frequently, you're more likely to get side effects. So suddenly the input you need needs to become much more individualized. Are you worried about the amount of opiates opiates people are using? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's, it's a huge problem. Opioids, I yeah. to say, didn't yeah. I? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, and, well, and I, I think I'm worried about the whole um, level of, you know, drug use, and these drugs tend to be sort of um, related to the brain. So, the whole use of opiates, the whole use of antidepressants in um, or psychoactive drugs. The, the whole of it is a massive concern because most of the um, studies are used are designed for short-term use. 
but people are starting to use them long term and they're starting to use them in people who are young so the long term um, consequences of this are really quite scary and so there's a chap called um, Martin Seligman who um, is a positive psychologist and he was reading a book um, I think it's the, the anatomy of an epidemic I think which is kind of how antidepressants in particular are starting to kind of just get used more and more and more and and so yeah I am worried about that but and I think that what I my experience is is that we're just not being precise about taking individual people and trying to give them an accurate diagnosis of what's going on because even if even if it's the right thing to give a certain medicine it's always struck me as odd that if you're like if, as long as you're an adult if you're, whether you're 150 kilos or 50 kilos you get the same dose and that can't that can't be right can it I mean that just on the very simple um, dose dosage like that and then coupled to the fact that it's maybe not the best thing in many cases as you say when it's long term but it's partly the problem that you talk about the biological the psycho psychological and the social the only really the first one is available to a lot of doctors you know like it's easy to give it's easy to give tablets but it's very difficult to intervene in someone's life you know it's very difficult for the doctors to say you should be you know you need to be doing this with your life you need do you see what I mean it's a, yeah, no, it's a much more it's, even if maybe they're thinking those things it's much more difficult to offer those things to patients isn't it well I think at the, I would make I would add the other the, the other dimension I would say that this, the system at the moment is very well set up for acute crises so in what I do now which is seeing a lot of people with injuries the, um, the acute trauma centre network and the care that you can get when you've been in a big accident in the first 24 hours, 48 hours, is, fan is unbelievable, it's fantastic. But once you start to move beyond that time period and you start to get into a more sort of more chronic type of problem, the services that we've got in the NHS, they're way more underdeveloped. And I think it's similar with the GP, you, you, you can, you, you can get to see a GP with one single problem that's in an acute state. But as you start to move into a chronic problem where you need the same person to see you over time, we struggle much more. Mm. And I think that what would happen with pain is that you end up, you, those biopsychosocial options, you're right that the GP themselves can give the tablets out and they've got access to... Um, pain services to a certain extent but they're all separate so it's quite difficult to send them to a service where you have all of the specialist bio all of the specialist psycho and all of the specialist um, social all working together and in fairness the um, what we know about each of those is still evolving we're still early on um, but if you're the patient with the problem now, what I see an awful lot is a lot of frustrated patients. I hear a lot of that, that um, frustration from people I've talked to. They kind of don't, if they've gone to the GP and the GP said this, this is your option or, or not much else, they don't really know where to turn. And I guess, I think a lot of people just don't know, you're saying with a headache, a lot of people, they don't know what's happening in their body. Maybe that would be a good thing to, I meant to start with actually, just to try and explain on it from a, neurological point of view when you feel pain when anyone feels pain and the simpler what what is what's the process within the body well, well I think I was I thought you might ask me that and I was thinking let's take toothache 
you know, all of us have had toothache. And so you've got some problem with the tooth and it's, it's inflamed. And as a consequence of that inflammation, it's stimulating the nerve in the face, which is then sending that message to the brain. And it's when the message gets to the brain that you feel the pain. And the pain system is there to tell you something is wrong. And it works with toothache, doesn't it? You know, so we sort of reach for the painkillers and the painkillers don't work very well. So you end up having loads, but you, before you know it, you're phoning up the dentist and you're getting the, your tooth looked at and you're getting that tooth fixed. And when they fix the tooth, the pain goes away and everything goes back to normal. That's, how, that's what the pain system was designed to do. And for the vast, the vast amount of things that happen to us, it works really well. You know, the pain system is there to tell you something's injured, to stop it moving, to get your attention to focus on it, to get it fixed, to get it back to normal so you can get on with your life. So it's a brilliant system and people who don't have um, pain systems run into massive problems because they get silent fractures and their joints fall apart. Um, the problem is when the pain system, when you move from a single discrete event that's triggered your pain system in a way that's going to be fixed, it's when that happens that things all change. And it seems um, that our understanding of what is really happening when that change happens is very, um, it's not well understood. And so from a neurological perspective, if we sort of go through it biologically, and then we onto that, we can then add the psycho and the social. Let's say you've got an injury in your arm. Well, the injury could be to the skin, to the muscle, to the bones or the joints, um, or it could be to the nerves itself. And then that information is then fed up to um, the spinal cord and there's some reflexes that would pull you away from what if you're touching something that's painful and there's also information sent up to the brain and then the brain also can send information down so that's the um, sort of the, you know the, the basics of the um, neuroanatomy if you like now if the if it's all simple and discreet the injury will that it'll all work you'll stop moving someone will fix whatever the problem is the, it'll all go back to normal and then you, you it'll all go the problem is if if at some at some point um it, it becomes complicated rather than simple so what do i mean by that so if the peripheral injury itself is severe or complicated so it doesn't settle down in the way that you want it to what that means then is that the, uh, where the information, the sensory information is going into the spinal cord, instead of just being for a short period of time, peaking and then going down, it just carries on for much longer. So it, but it's keeping sending signals, yeah. basically. And it's sending signals from what could be an injury, you know, something that's not working properly, something that's healed badly. So it could be, it could be messages from that. But 
if in the if you say in the, in the um, case of an absent limb, it's sending it from from nowhere. I guess just from the well. The what it's it's with the phantom limb, the problem is is the, the, the bit of the bra- there's a bit of the brain that's expecting to get information from that bit of the limb. So you're that, that what with phantom pain, you've you've got part of the clever bit of the brain that's expecting information from your hand and it's not getting any information from the hand so what starts to happen is that the um, because it's it's not static the bits of the brain that lie next to it they start to grow into the bit of the brain that's not getting any information so with the hand if you stimulate the face or you stimulate below the arm that then starts to produce stimulation that the brain starts to pick up so that's what that, that that's what starts to maintain phantom pain okay so it, so it's gone on to reading signs from other parts of the yeah. body yeah which and and why pain then if it's well yeah so, so, so what, what, what why does the brain why? generate the pain yeah I think it's a sort of a sort of a generic response to faulty information coming in so is it, is it basically operating on a no news is bad news? Yeah. So it doesn't hear back, so it assumes the leg's in pain. Well, I think that, that, so to begin with, um, it, it, it's not quite that. I think that what happens is that the, um, to begin with, it's not getting any information and nothing has changed. But as the, the, the nervous system thinks, right, I'm going to start uh, moving into the area that's, that's not active, um, that then starts to generate abnormal sensory input. And so I think it's abnormal sensory input the brain thinks, ah, that must mean pain. So this is why the mirror therapy works. So when you um, set up a set of mirrors, so, so you're, you look at the hand where the phantom pain is, and it looks like a normal hand, that then activates other bits of the nervous system that say, ah, yes. Oh, you've heard about this. So you just look at your other hand in the mirror. Yeah, but but in where the phantom should be. Yes. And then suddenly, if the phantom is doing this, you can suddenly start to open up the phantom, and the pain starts to get better. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. But that but that's recruiting sort of associated parts of the nervous system that that it would have used before. So it's clever. So we were talk, talking about peripheral injury. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. going into the spine uh, into the spinal cord and if it if it's all a nice discrete acute event not a problem but if the peripheral injury doesn't go according to plan and continues to bombard the spinal cord then the spinal cord can start to get sensitive sensitized so even at a later point if it all heals up that bombarding the spinal cord for a sufficiently long period of time has changed the spinal cord so it never resets itself back to normal okay so, so can you get this this kind of thing from a whole range of injuries where the, the spinal cord just it kind of it, it feels too much pain and then never forgets it is that yeah so, 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 so it's commonest point? if you damage a nerve so if you actually so in the perif- in the periphery if you damage the nerve and particularly if the nerve doesn't quite regrow properly then that's much more likely to give you this type of sensitization, abnormal regrowing, which is much more likely to give you chronic pain. But let's say something like whiplash. So obviously, you know, whiplash is controversial. 
Um, but there's no doubt about it that, you know, in good studies, you know, 20% of the people who've got this chronic whiplash, you can see when you scan their muscles that their muscles have, are abnormal. They've, they've accumulated too much fat. The nerve supply to the muscle is not correct. And that then is um, continuing to generate, bombard the spinal cord, which is why they've got chronic pain. So it's, it's controversial, not that it exists, but it's more controversial because lots of people who haven't got it are saying they've got it. Yeah. Which is not quite the same thing. All the doctors accept it, don't they? But it's just, oh, my whiplash. I mean, I know people that yeah, have you know, absolutely. insurance claim yeah, thing. Yeah. It's not, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so, so absolutely, so, and that, this is why it becomes complicated. Yeah. So, so, so then with, um, so the people I would see, for example, so I would see people with, say, a head injury, and so they're not really coming to see me about the whiplash injury or yeah. their neck injury. But what's striking to me is that although they've got some symptoms from head injury that are really quite bad, day to day, moment by moment, their neck pain or their arm pain is what is m much more disabling for them. Um, and actually seeing a lot of people like that was how I started to get interested in that particularly because it's quite difficult to get people to focus on other bits of their health if they've got a painful neck or a painful arm. Um, and it struck me given the rest of their injuries, there, there was no reason at all for them to be hamming up the neck pain, which again was what it got me interested in kind of, well, what is happening in these people who just seem to have a muscular injury that then becomes chronic is it real and, and what seems to happen is that for certain people the acute muscular injury instead of settling down starts to generate something called myofascial change which is like you can see it and if you've got myofascial change in your muscle it's the input that it's putting into the spinal cord is um, abnormal which is why the spinal cord becomes sensitized which is why you get chronic pain now linking that to the biopsychosocial so that is very biological isn't it but what's interesting is that the linking it to the psychological you're much more likely to generate the myofascial change if the accident was terrifying so if the accident you experience has been very threatening you felt trapped you thought there was a moment when you were going to be really seriously injured. If that happens at the same time as you get the muscular injury, then your risk of getting the myofascial change is significantly higher. Okay. Similarly, if after the accident, you go home to a nice, warm, comforting, welcoming environment, your risk of going from acute to chronic drops down. But if you go to hospital and you have to go and have surgeries because of other injuries you've got and you're in hospital away from your family for the next two or three weeks, then your risk is higher. So this affects this myofascial change that you're talking about. Yeah. So this is something that you can detect. You can do a scan and you, you can, can see it on a... Okay, so, you can, so you can, you're kind of detecting pain that you can you kind of quantify from looking at it. Well, so, so what's happening is that you're taking people who are complaining of whiplash type symptoms and as you say you've got this spectrum from people who you think are just kind of saying they've got it because they're going to get a bit of money from the insurance to people who the symptoms are terrible and are really affecting their life and if you um, now the symptoms that they describe 
are similar, they may be more severe in this group, but what you can then do is take that group and you can scan their neck muscles and you can see in the people who've got the worst symptoms, that are the, long, the, the longest lasting, they've got clear muscular changes, they've got clear changes in the muscles on the scans. And what can be done about that? Does that then, are there then different um, remedies depending where it is in the body? And Well, I think that what I would say, my experience of, so again, thinking going, then the treatment becomes biopsychosocial mm-hmm. as well. So the first thing is giving people an accurate diagnosis. Once people can understand why they've got the pain, that makes such a big difference. It's difficult to describe. You know, even if you can't do much, Helping people make sense of why they've got the symptoms, I found, is very powerful, just on its own. It's huge. I mean, I've got a friend who, she, a few years ago, she hurt her back. And it, since then, it's, she's been to loads of different doctors. She's, she's really looked into it, and she's never really got a good answer. But it's kind of spread around her body. So she's had terrible pain in all different limbs, neck, and everything and has never had really much of an explanation. Um, and I think that's, as well as having crippling pain, it's one of the, one of the hardest things, because you've kind of got, as you said before, people people's sympathy kind of runs out, because they understand things that they can see. You know, you've broken your leg, it takes X number of weeks to heal, or, and, then, and then you're done with it. But something that's unseen and doesn't stop, I mean, the, the added psychological burden on top of that's huge I think yeah no I mean you know I mean and that that so my own experience of back pain was just like that I could I, I could almost feel that people were kind of looking at me as if to say you know are you hamming this up or um and, and, so, and so what I would say but like with all except my experience of kind of looking after people like this is is if you can get access to the right diagnostics you tend to be able to get back to what was the root cause of the original pain. Going back to um, Nikolai Bogduk, the professor from um, Australia, you know, he, so he concentrating on lower back pain was that they took um, cadavers and then they put little um, silver foil. What we call dead bodies. Yeah, the rest of absolutely. Dead yeah. Bodies. <laughs> um, they put little silver foil on all of the nervous structures and they x-rayed them to try and work out how you could selectively um, block each of the nerves and he would say and he publishes that if you do proper diagnostic blocks you can find the cause of the low back pain in up to 90 percent of people and that's really important isn't it because then you're saying that the there, there, there is an at the heart of this, there was an injury to something that triggered it all. Now, what then happens as a consequence then goes to the psychosocial context in which you find yourself. So if you are somebody who has had significant psychological problems in the past and you've got this new biological insult, both the severity of the biological insult that you get and your ability to cope with it will be different. And similarly, the context, the social context in which you find yourself, if this is happening in the middle of the most important um, business deal of your career, you know, that's different uh, if it happens to you once you've retired or something like that. And this, um, looking at it like that feels to be a much more authentic synthesis of this biopsychosocial. So you're having to basically look at the patient as a, as a whole yeah. and everything that's going on in their life 
Um, so if people come to you at Recognition Health, if, I mean, it's a private clinic, so people are lucky enough to be able to afford it and you've got the time to sit down with them. So what would it be a question if, of breaking down the different aspects of their life and looking at what they can well, I think from, a, from, from where I personally get involved, typically, is people who've got chronic pain and people are just not sure what's, what's the underlying cause. Is it real? And so, so, so that's where I get involved. So trying to, trying to go back and make the biological diagnosis. So, so that, that, that's my sort of focus. Um, and it's... And what I've kind of learned from that is it just takes a long time. So that means for me, I have to sort of sit with the person, get them to go through their symptoms, get them to draw out exactly where the symptoms are. Typically, I then have to go back myself and look at kind of exactly where these nerve structures are and um, what, what we know about, you know, if you collect together, um, you know, 100 people who've damaged their L2 nerve root, what spectrum of symptoms would you expect where would you get it because a lot of times people are saying well that doesn't conform perfectly to what we expect from that nerve so that can't possibly be the cause of it but when you actually go back and look at kind of the studies you find that the the distribution of the pain and the sensory disturbance it can be much broader than you would you would imagine so so that tends to be my focus at the moment so you focus on what's wrong biologically but then if you if you make a diagnosis you would have in Interventions which might include what? So yeah, so, 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 so typically um, what I'm tending to find is that you, 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 the underlying cause of the pain syndrome tends to be that there's been a sensory nerve that's been damaged that just w wasn't detected for whatever reason. So once we've got to that point, it will be then you know, sending the person off to, a, to, to the pain people who could then you know, block the nerve and see what happens. And once you, they've done that, that can confirm the diagnosis. And then if you do think it's biological and it's not gonna to respond to a simple blockage procedure, you could then consider things like spinal cord stimulators, or you could go into a, um, a more psychological, socially focused rehab program. So you might steer them, if you, yeah. if you can't find a biological cause, yeah. you'll steer them in the direction of someone who could address those. Yeah, and I, and I think that, the, but, but, but the important thing is, is that you're, you're sending, at that point, you're sending the person to psychological and social intervention, saying, look, we can see biologically what's wrong, mm -hmm. and there's a limit to what we can do with tablets, surgeries, injections. So the truth is, you're gonna be left with a certain amount of these symptoms you know, with what we've got available at the moment. So we then use psychological and social interventions to help you cope optimally with those residual symptoms. Because do you think people are wanting for pain to go away completely, and you're having to manage their yeah, of course. So we will, you know, and, and I, you know, wouldn't we all want that to be the case? Want, I didn't. I mean, yeah. expecting rather than oh yeah, wanting no, no, one no, thing. No, no, no. I don't. I, but, but, but my experience is almost universal in is that people are unbelievably accepting really of kind of but what, what they don't want to be told is that it's all in their head no because i mean even if it stems from some psychological issue it doesn't deserve any less sympathy yeah, that, the, that, that, that's you know and, and that's the kind of what i see all the time is that people think look you know we all have challenges to a certain extent i was going along and then suddenly I ended up with this pain. And from that point, 
things have never been right. And, and, and most people will accept that they've got there's a variable psychological response to things. There are factors in all of our lives. But what people really don't like is being told all of the pain and all of the disability that's going with it is somehow coming from inside their heads. Mm. And, and I think that that's, um, that's not an accurate representation of what people really are trying to say with this biopsychosocial model of pain. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's crazy to, to ignore the psychological aspects because I think everyone, everyone that I've talked to who's suffered chronic pain, they talk about how it dovetails with other bad things in their life. You know, so they're, they're sad because of something else and it, it makes the pain worse. And I think that's... Completely normal. Yeah. Yeah, it was as you would as you would as, as yeah. you would expect yeah. um, on a on a very simple level. But I don't think we know how how deep rooted physical pain could be psychological as well. There's this kind of there's this thing. Um, it sounds like it's going off topic, but it's relevant in in hot yoga that people do, and they, people get emotional a lot of the time. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard about this before. It's when you kind of get into a deep stretch. I, with a lot of the yoga stuff I'm listening thinking oh, you know yeah. I don't want to get too deeply into the woo of it yeah. but the stuff about where you, you hit into the what feels like an old pain that you didn't yeah. know was there and it can be accompanied by this well of a, this kind of swelling up of emotion and it's kind of this weird thing that again it doesn't sound very scientific but this idea of people holding hmm. suffering within their yeah. bodies does that sound like yeah it does I mean and so there was a um, so I remember really clearly seeing a patient who was involved in a car accident where the car span round but they weren't injured and and, and, and following that they then developed the most terrible um, sort of neurological symptoms which were all clearly psychological were, were psychological there was no physical underlying cause for it and it was very dramatic and unbelievably disabling for the person and at the time and still I've worked with a, a colleague in psychology and he sent me a podcast strangely enough from this chap called Robert Scare who's a neurologist in the States and he'd been running a pain clinic in Boulder Colorado I think it was and he um, was talking about the work of a guy called um, Peter Levine who has developed something called somatic experiencing and talking about exactly what y you've just mentioned and he and the way I sort of try and help people understand this is he gives the example of a firefighter who developed a frozen shoulder so his right shoulder he couldn't move and so this firefighter slowly over weeks and months developed this arm and he ended up going to see Peter Levine and so what Peter Levine did was sort of said look I'm just going to get you to relax sit still and then what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and move your arm and uh, and what will happen as you start to move your arm is your arm will start to shake and you'll feel terrible and you'll want to you'll want me to stop moving it he says I'm you know I just want you to trust me keep I'm not going to hurt you I'm just going to move it a little bit more so he starts doing this and he starts sort of sweating and his arms start shaking and then suddenly he sort of goes oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god and he suddenly realised that what had happened was he'd gone to a car accident and he'd put his arm into a car to switch off the ignition of a car that was switched on. And as he did that, he looked over and he saw a decapitated baby. And, and he completely blanked that memory. So as he um, got him to move his arm, 
and then all the memories came back. So he started to move his arm again. He was able to sort of, you know, allow the memory to sort of enter his nervous system and his arm got back to normal. So is that something that doctors would look for to kind of, if, they, if they've eliminated all other causes? They well, would... Yeah, so, 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 part, so, so I think that certainly we say the people who get whiplash, who get chronic whiplash, and again, so I tend to be seeing them largely for query have they had a brain injury in association with their injuries. But the it's clear to me that what, so, so what um, Peter Levine's work was was showing was that if you have an injury, you have an accident, and it it happens in a very emotionally charged environment, particularly if you think you might die, mm. then the, the the autonomic response can exactly trigger this type of um, locking a memory into what seems to be sort of um, a, a muscular movement. And, and so now we're starting to do work with um, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan and listening to the types of injuries that they suffer and the, the, um, the moments they find themselves in. It's unbelievable. And it, it, it seems pretty plausible to me that as part of um, their symptoms, they must have elements of this. But again, you have to be try and be systematic. You have to think, well, they, they were also subject to big blast injuries. They were all thrown out of cars. They have limbs um, missing. They have um, colleagues who were dead next to them. Mm. So in, in that situation, you have to try and ha have a very wide lens and be open to um, you know, all of these potential inputs. Um, but, but I've become quite, um, so, so, so Robert Scare, who's the neurologist who um, picked up the work from Peter Levine, I mean, he's written a t textbook about this and it's in its third edition. You know, and from my perspective, reading it scientifically, it's fantastic. And in terms of my clinical experience, it really helps explain a lot of things. And, and you know, there must be something about the way the people are telling you about their experience in hot yoga that feels authentic and is, that is resonating with you. It does feel it does feel authentic. It does feel authentic. I mean, I'm I'm big on this thing that I'm, I'm aware that you you have limited options with if you go to the GP. They, there's only so much they can do, but. I think all of us have to look at any health problem, not just pain, but is the kind of, have you got everything right in your life? You know, are people being horrible to you? Are you, um, you know, are you being humiliated on a daily basis? Are you, do you have friendships and family and things? All these important things that everyone needs to be healthy and happy and dealing with whatever physical things you might have wrong with you can be done as well. But you've got to have all the other stuff. I well, well, I think what I would say, you know, and we haven't even really got into this at all, but w w one of the biggest revelations for me in the last 10 years has been the sort of the integration of emotion and feeling into how the kind of nervous system works. And so there's, um, we're hearing more and more about mindfulness, um, which is fantastic. But the way I now make sense of that is that everything that you were talking about, about kind of the hot yoga and the um, information in the muscles, the emotional context, this, this really, the, the, the way all of that information is going to be available to us is in terms of how we feel. 
and uh, helping people understand getting a clear handle on how you feel and the different types of feelings and the meanings of the different feelings I think is a hugely untapped area so with people with chronic pain where you've got a genuine biological cause for the pain which you can only say get 50% better my view now is that the, the, the way you get those people to enjoy their life is to kind of optimize the psychological and social elements and the biggest leverage point into opening up the psychological and social um, resilience is through getting back in touch with your feelings accurately and you know so that's um, I, I think will be a huge area over the next 10 to 20 years amazing we're out of time sadly it's great to talk to you and it's very it's a huge area and there's so much to talk about yeah. I hope we've covered a bit of it yeah, yeah very interesting for me so Dr Steve Alder from Recognition Health recognitionhealth.com thank you very much it's a pleasure thank you again to Dr Steve Alder find out more about the work he's doing at recognitionhealth.com healthybeasts at Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram. Thank you very much. Bye.